This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. After seven decades in the media, the non-Nigerian media mogul Rupert Murdoch is finally starting up the succession plan for his empire. Or is he? And if he is, what might change? We ask an Australian expert who wrote all about this ten years ago, when one of Murdoch's biggest companies was mired in an epic scandal. He'd just been divorced, and it looked like the succession was on. Ten years later, a hit TV series of the same name has come and gone, another epic corporate scandal has unfolded and he's had another divorce, so is Rupert really on the way out this time? Before that though, the election, some politicians have hit out at media coverage of the election campaign and even claimed that some outlets are campaigning against them. It's all a part of politics, but what plans do our political parties have for the media should they end up in power? But before that... How the media handled some strong criticisms this week of a centrepiece election policy on tax. The National Party has admitted that its much fettered tax cut of $250 a fortnight will only go to 3,000 families. Despite knowing that number all along, the party is denying it's misled the public. As political editor Jenna Lynch reports, the Labour Party is accusing them of scamming voters. That was News Hub at 6 on Thursday night, reporting on the National Party tax cut policy which was announced way back in early September to ease what the party dubbed the squeezed middle with claims that an average income family with children would benefit. And last Wednesday, the Council of Trade Unions, which is of course aligned to Labour and even donates to the party, had released research which said actually only about 3,000 households could get the $250 a fortnight maximum from the cuts. But that sum got maximum exposure in early September in headlines like this one in the press. Families in line for $250 a fortnight under national tax cut. This one from interest.co.nz. National promises $250 more a fortnight for average households. And this one in the New Zealand Herald. Election 2023. National's tax plan offers average household with kids $250 and Kiwi worker $50 a fortnight. And under that Herald headline, the paper's deputy political editor Thomas Coughlin made this point at that time. All the savings were expressed as fortnightly figures, rather than weekly figures, making them look larger. And as Hayden Donnell pointed out here on Media Watch at the time, our news organisations also adopted the National Party's preferred unit of measurement for people as well, households rather than individuals. But few reporters at the time mentioned that the $250 a fortnight saving for an average family would also include $150 from the already announced Family Boost Tax Credit Scheme, which could also replace 20 hours of free childcare for two-year-olds, which the current government had already announced in the budget this year. Nevertheless, TVNZ's political editor Jessica Much Mackay said back then, the Nationals' Big Bang tax announcement was a good political move. Senior political correspondent Tova O'Brien said that Nationals finance spokesperson Nicola Willis should get a standing ovation for it. And NewsHub's political editor Jenna Lynch told her viewers this. This is a masterclass in political marketing. National has taken what is, in reality, a $25 a week tax cut for most middle earners, doubled it into a couple, doubled it into a fortnight, slapped their childcare subsidy in there, and all of a sudden they have a $250 figure to slap all over the billboards. And as we've just heard, the media slapped it all over their headlines as well. And when the first TVNZ leaders debate aired in mid-September, Deputy Political Editor Mikey Sherman dropped National's preferred figure into her analysis like this. 
he didn't hit back and he didn't kind of tack on other policies that Labor is promising mm -hmm. that could beef up uh, that whole package for families like National has done with its $250 a fortnight package for those squeezed middle that they're talking about. Now at that time a lot of the reporters and pundits were focusing on how those tax cuts for National could be funded rather than who might get the biggest benefit from them. But some journalists did point out that low earners would get mostly pretty meagre relief under the plan. And among them was TVNZ's Mikey Sherman when she put this question to National Party candidate Tama Potaka on TVNZ's Kopapa Māori debate two weeks ago. I put the Māori median wage through National's own tax calculator. It saves an individual without children. It saves them $8.31 a fortnight, $4.15 a week. Probably that sounds like carrots and beans. Oh, it's more than the carrots and beans, broccoli and Brussels sprouts. What can you that, buy uh, for $4.15? What can I buy for $4.15? A couple of protein bars. Uh, a lot of rice. Wow. And that's, go that's going to feed the whanau, is it? No, 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 it's not going to feed the whanau. And News Hub political reporter Amelia Wade seized on those CTU figures when they came out this week, and she was clearly frustrated when trying to confirm the 3,000 households claim with the National Party. We sent the Council of Trade Unions numbers and workings in my story there to the National Party today in good faith so that they had adequate time to respond. But instead of responding, they fired off a conspiratorial PR trying to, put, uh, trying to pin that on the Labour Party. And when Nicola Willis did finally confirm the figure the next day on RNZ's morning report with Charlotte Cook, she said that the National Party had been careful to say all along households would get up to $250 a fortnight but not careful enough for News Talk ZB News later that same day. Luxon denies he's being disingenuous. We've always said, look, up to $250. But he hasn't always said that. Here's Luxon in the first TVNZ leaders debate where he didn't use the words up to. I'm going to give them tax relief. For an average household income family with young kids, that would mean $250 a fortnight, and that would make a huge difference to them. And on News Hub at 6 that same night, political editor Jenna Lynch wasn't satisfied either. We've always said, look, up to $250 a week for an average household income with young children. Except they haven't always. It does give an average income household family with young kids $250 extra a fortnight. On Thursday, Jenna Lynch went on to say this. Yeah, effectively what they were doing with all of that up to 250 is like an old retail technique, having an up to 80% off sale and then only having one item in the store worth that. The rest of the store is only 10% off. Though that was a bit of a crude comparison and National's tax calculator would show that other families could still get substantial benefit, if not the maximum. But while she was at it, Jenna Lynch also pointed out that that online calculator didn't specify that the childcare rebate only applied to early childhood education costs for under five-year-olds. And the National Party then amended their tax calculator after she pointed that out. So good for voters and viewers to have more clarity and accuracy on that. But one month on from the launch of National's tax cut policy, Jenna Lynch was clearly no longer as impressed with what she had deemed a political marketing masterstroke when it was first unveiled. 20 bucks just isn't enough to buy a vote in this economy. All of the focus groups say so, but $250, that is massive money. Genius. Reflecting on all this on News Talk ZB last Thursday, the network's political editor Jason Walls said that the moral of the story for us was... Voter beware. On the one hand, like, yes, obviously this is a trick of marketing. You say up to, 
Um, and that's people mm-hmm. have to work it out themselves. Like, yes, there is the 0.18, which is really small. I mean, you would have thought it would have been a bit bigger, but people do have a bit of a responsibility to work this out by themselves. You can't just rely yeah. on seeing an ad and being like, oh, that's probably me. I'm going to get the $250. And voters should indeed be wary when political parties are presenting their policy the way they want it. But many people heard those favourable figures and the impression that average families would benefit not from the National Party, but from the media, repeating their words and numbers uncritically. And, as we've heard, also from political editors who praised the party for putting the numbers and words together like that before running the numbers themselves. You have Thank failed you, against co-government. Thank you, Jack. You just made a hopeless case here. You've failed against to, co-government. For us to make sure we get the broadcasting portfolio after this election. Is that a threat, Mr Peters? <laughs> no, it's not a threat. It's a promise that you're going to be, have an operation that's much more improved than what it is now. Is this an idea? That was Winston Peters biting back at TVNZ host Jack Tame in an extraordinary interview last weekend on the Q&A show with just an idea his party in charge of broadcasting and media policy after the election. Now, Mr Peters called the host arrogant, jumped up, overpaid, a Philadelphia lawyer and more in that encounter. But the most menacing claim was that Jack Tame was biased because his bosses at the state-owned broadcaster wanted it that way. We're not corrupt like you. You're on this programme trying to get rid of New Zealand first because your masters no, told you to. I'm asking... i got news for you, Jack, and your masters... The people out there will decide this election, and the news for your masters is all bad. Just one week earlier, the New Zealand First Leader had complained that the media were working in concert with rival politicians to shut us out of this campaign. And he singled out News Hub and Stuff and said that the absence of an honest fourth estate, coupled with co-governance, had left our democracy hanging by a thread. None of this is on the New Zealand First website as policy, though there is a strident call on the website for a Royal Commission of Inquiry into Media Bias and Manipulation in New Zealand with the petition and this claim. We have clearly biased media in New Zealand, conditioned now to publish what they believe is true, not what is fact. TVNZ responded to Winston Peters' claims on the Q&A show like this. TVNZ says its editorial independence is protected by legislation. It says Q&A operates without fear or favour and challenges people across the political spectrum. It says host Jack Tame was doing his job. And as part of that job, Jack Tame last weekend also asked about New Zealand First donations from rich listers in this campaign and from racing circles. And that drew this response from Mr Peters. We won't have amateur hour based on what you don't know. By all means, Mr Peters, I'm answering you. Well, if you'll just keep quiet for a second, take a valium, and realise we're only two weeks away from the election. Well, it's only one week to go now to election day, and early voting opened just the day after Winston Peters threatened to sort out TVNZ once in power. And not once, but... Twice in that interview. Should answer straight yeah, questions. Start with you being put to them, being put to them with on TVNZ after this campaign. Being put to them on how behalf of the wasted, New Zealand How people? much have they wasted on the merger? The pattern in past election campaigns has been that our political parties push policies on big ticket issues like tax, health, and education, and current campaign controversies like co governance, while broadcasting and media plans are often left to either the last minute or overlooked entirely. 
But while media policy is not seen as a vote-grabber by most parties, our media are important and influential and partly state-owned. And over the past decade, successive governments have spent more than a quarter of a billion dollars a year on the media, and that's rising. So what do the parties have planned for it this time round? Now, last Monday, New Zealand First's current broadcasting spokesperson, Jenny Marcroft, told a special election media policy debate organised by the lobby group Better Public Media it was a shame that the media merger didn't happen, and she praised the current minister for trying. Um, I believe that um, he's actually done a good job, pretty good job, and it was just a real shame. He had three weeks to go. He could have got that, that merger through, but uh, the rug was pulled out from underneath him. That's Jenny Marcroft, number five on the New Zealand First Party list, who's a former broadcaster who returned to part-time broadcasting at MediaWorks when she wasn't returned to Parliament in 2020, and who could conceivably be a broadcasting minister after the upcoming election. Now, the Labour Party's post-merger Plan B is more money instead for state-owned RNZ and Māori Broadcasting and the government's broadcasting funding agency New Zealand On Air. And it was described like this by the Broadcasting and Media Minister Willie Jackson at that Better Public Media event last Monday. When the merger fell over, we had to come up with something else. And I think in the last seven or eight months, you know, we've got the frameworks in place. You know, the, the initial investment in terms of RNZ which was starved of, of money for 10 years. Willie Jackson said TBNZ and RNZ now have newly staffed boards to take the state-owned broadcasters forward, but they won't repeat the public interest journalism fund which ran for the past three years and cost $55 million. Willie Jackson said he also wants to reform the Broadcasting Act of 1989, which predates the internet, and pass the Fair Digital News Bargaining Bill into law, the bill which would oblige big tech companies to pay local news media for the news that they carry. It'll give the, the news producers a chance to actually get some compensation because they've been ripped off by these global giants. They've been ripped off, and, 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 and I've had so many people come to my office and, and ask for us to do something. But in the end, said Willie Jackson, it will still be finance ministers who hold the purse strings. Because that minister, like I do in Māori development, and, I, and I've had to do in broadcasting, has to go up to the Minister of Finance, has to work with Treasury in terms of pulling resources back. Now, the National Party's long-serving spokesperson on broadcasting and media is Melissa Lee, formerly a TV producer herself before she went into politics, making programmes for Asian New Zealanders with New Zealand on-air funds. National strongly opposed Labour's public media merger, and Melissa Lee has called the Fair Digital News Bargaining Bill an internet tax and argued that tech companies shouldn't be compelled to do deals with our news media. This time round, there's nothing in National's policy manifesto so far about broadcasting or media, and it doesn't feature at all in the party's plan for its first 100 days in power. And Melissa Lee was not at the better public media debate held in her own electorate this week to put forward the party's plans. The ACT Party wasn't represented at Monday's debate either, and broadcasting and media doesn't feature in any of their published manifesto or policy plans. But the party did condemn the RNZ-TVNZ merger as a waste of money in the past, and in a statement in 2021, ACT leader David Seymour said that ACT would apply the mixed ownership model to TVNZ to pay down COVID-19 debts and improve their long-run profitability and possibly dividends. Now, commercial media might also take an indirect hit to revenues under a national and or ACT government, 
Both parties have pledged to cut state agency spending on advertising and public information, such as those lucrative road safety ad campaigns, ACC messages and things like that. Te Pāti Māori didn't attend Monday's debate either, and its manifesto's only specific media policy is to require all state-funded broadcasters to have a basic fluency level of te reo Māori. In the past, New Zealand First had several highly specific and quite ambitious media policies at election time, such as selling TV2 and decommercialising TV1, and also putting what they called sports of national significance back on free-to-air television. And in 2017, the party also backed a digital services tax for big tech platforms hosting New Zealand journalism on their platforms, and also for international outfits operating here, like Netflix. And New Zealand First spokesperson Jenny Marcroft was an energetic contributor to that Better Public Media event last Monday. She said the party backed the Fair Digital News Bargaining Bill and also suggested that subscriptions to news organisations could become tax-deductible and also that the government should invest in a training pipeline of media talent. We would like to have a collaboration with uh, newsrooms uh, to have a 50-50 funding system for a two-year internship for journalism students and media students coming out of uh, journo schools. Jenny Marcroft also said they'd fold up existing and ageing media legislation into a new Public Media Act and create a new avenue for compliance and complaints. And also what we'd like to do is we'd like to replace the BSA, the Broadcasting Standards Authority, and establish the role of a media ombudsman. In 2017, New Zealand First also backed a digital services tax for big tech platforms, something the Green Party had also suggested at that time. And at Monday's Better Public Media meeting, the Green spokesperson Ricardo Menendez-March, also a candidate for Mount Albert, said they still back that idea. Um, Green Party is very much open to the idea of having a levy to create that a partisan um, funding stream. And I think particularly for um, our community and student media, I think that will also be really, really important. The Green Party's policy for this election is mostly a reboot of previous election policies based on backing and bolstering existing state-owned broadcasters and New Zealand on air. It also says Māori broadcasting and media should be prioritised and recognised as a platform to uphold the culture of tangata whenua in Aotearoa, New Zealand. It wants to bring the three existing media industry regulators for news, broadcasting and advertising into one common framework based on self-regulation and giving effect to te tiriti o waitangi. It also wants to establish what it calls a digital media commons for public TV and radio, community broadcasters and website media providers, which gives free access to all public interest content and publicly funded resources. Now back in 2014, the Greens also backed the creation of a public journalism fund to be administered by Creative New Zealand, and its current policy is an evolution of the one it's developed and updated over several campaigns. Now it's strange that for an industry and a public service that's in huge upheaval right now, and one that's important to politicians for their own interests, that there is so little interest in up-to-date policies for the media being available to the public. But there's still a week to go, and still the chance of something unexpected from the parties before polling day next weekend. Last month, news that was essentially inevitable to many in the media industry finally broke, yet somehow they'd waited for it so long that some began to think it might never actually come. After seven decades as a mega media mogul, 
92-year-old Rupert Murdoch confirmed he was handing over control of his giant international news companies, Fox and News Corp, to his son, Lachlan Murdoch. But this wasn't retirement or resignation as most people would know it, or indeed do it. He'd be sticking around, he said, having given himself the unusual title Chairman Emeritus. And in a memo to staff, Rupert Murdoch said that that meant he wouldn't just be hanging around in Mahogany Row either. In my new role, I can guarantee you that I will be involved every day in the contest of ideas. I'll be watching our broadcasts with a critical eye, reading our newspapers and websites and books with much interest, and reaching out to you with thoughts, ideas and advice. When I visit your countries and companies, you can expect to see me in the office late on a Friday afternoon. Well, this is effectively what Rupert Murdoch has been doing for decades, guiding the work of his journalists and editors, influencing political decisions and appointments and even elections, as well as public opinion on a range of issues. For years, his editors denied that it was Rupert calling the shots for them or that his influence was in any way bad for the media or the countries in which they operated. But in recent years, those who have left Murdoch's companies have lifted the lid a little on how those things really worked. For example, after Murdoch's Fox News was sued for the thick end of a billion US dollars for knowingly broadcasting stolen election lies last year, a former editor of Murdoch's top-selling UK tabloid The Sun, David Yelland, said this. It is necessary to preserve the emperor's new clothes here. Rupert cannot afford to stand up and admit that Fox News tells lies for a living, which is what it does. It's very clear. But I do think that our generation of journalists, quite a lot of us, have allowed their entire careers to be corrupted. And that this is a really big problem. And just last week, the former editor of The Sun in Scotland, a former Murdoch protégé called Gordon Smart, revealed that Murdoch was literally leaning over his shoulder overseeing his coverage of the Scottish referendum on independence from the UK, which ended up going the way Rupert Murdoch wanted, but only just. Now here, Rupert Murdoch has had little interest or influence, having long ago sold his newspapers, which he'd acquired in the 1960s and 70s, though his Sky News Australia channel is still carried on Sky TV here. But in the UK, US and Australia, those still on his channels reacted on the air to Murdoch's transition from boss to chairman emeritus like this. His contributions are both innumerable and extraordinary. Thank you, Rupert, and congratulations. He is an extraordinary man with amazing energy optimism, but also I think when he looks at someone he sees 10 years beyond, which is also a superpower he's had. I can remember uh, going to have lunch at his home in, uh, in the hills outside LA. Uh, just to sit there and watch him eat lamb chops was, um, was quite an honour. Not stepping aside, this is just a transition yeah. and we're very excited for and the next you. step on that. Yeah, thank you. Well, that gallery of greasers was culled from last Monday's edition of Media Watch in Australia, a TV show on their public broadcaster, the ABC. And over the years, the Aussie Media Watch and Murdoch Media have been thorns in each other's sides. Host Paul Barry has been watching Murdoch for years and has written a biography of him called Breaking News, Sex, Lies and the Murdoch Succession, looking at how, in the wake of divorce, Murdoch was gearing up for the toughest challenge of his life to hand his empire onto his children. Perfect timing right now, then, you'd think, to shift a few copies of a book like that. Thing is, though... Paul Barry's book actually came out 10 years ago when a freshly divorced octogenarian Murdoch was thought to be close to succession in the wake of that phone hacking scandal. 
So this week I asked Paul Barry if he could have foreseen that another divorce, Jerry Hall this time, and another mega scandal, the Fox News lawsuits, and even a TV show based on the family called Succession, would all have come and gone before the mega media mogul actually made his move 10 years on. Rupert has always said that he was going to live until 120, so I'm not in the least surprised that he's still going, and I'm absolutely not in the least surprised that it's not really yet been settled. Although, clearly, Rupert has anointed Lachlan, and Lachlan is in, is in the box seat in control in the boardroom, uh, there is still the possibility that when Rupert dies, there will be some sort of upheaval because the, the children will then control the family trust, and whether they can all agree that Lachlan is the one to keep on going... It remains to be seen. Yeah, you do say in the book, actually, that as soon as you wrote it in the, in the epilogue, you had to try and keep updating it because he kept on doing stuff, age 82, you know, divorces, splitting up the holdings of the yeah. company. You did say, actually, at the age of 82, at one point in the book, surely he won't marry again. Uh, but I guess you, <laughs> you couldn't have guessed that Wrong Jerry place. Hall would come upon the scene and, uh, you know, there would even be a, a hit HBO show probably based on him and his uh, business and his family? Um, no, someone did actually option the film rights on the book. I think they had, had it more in mind that it was a phone-hacking book rather than a book about the succession. So I think it's very unlikely that, he, that he'll be able to keep his fingers out of the pie. He's never been able to in the past. And in that sense, he, you know, the character of Logan in succession is that that part of his character is based upon him. And even at 92, I, I find it implausible that he's going to give that up unless he is in a terrible state of health or unless he is absolutely deliriously in love. But I, I can't imagine that would last very long anyway, de delirium. So I think whatever happens, he's going to be there telling people what he thinks should happen. But he's looked at the news daily all his life and he doesn't intend to stop now. And he says, I'll be reading your papers and watching your programs and sharing my thoughts with you. So I, I, I'm not sure that there's going to be a massive difference between Rupert post post-stepping back and Rupert pre-stepping back. But um, in fact, it's a bit unclear what the purpose is, but I, I guess that it, what it does is solidify Lachlan as the, as the rightful heir, or the rightful, but the, as the one who's going to take over. Um, and it allows the market and, and the board and the company to get used to the idea that he is running the show. That makes it more difficult when Rupert dies for the, for the other kids to come along and try and kick him out. I think that's probably the purpose of it. Um, but I, I really don't see a massive change in how the way things are going to be run. But in Australia, I mean, we hear former prime ministers like Malcolm Turnbull, you know, uh, running campaigns uh, against his influence, calling for inquiries. Is it uh, his hold over his part of the media in Australia still exerting a huge influence on politics and in business? If you look at the... 2013 election, I think it was, when the Murdoch papers, the tabloids in particular, ran a savage campaign against the Labour Party. The swing against Labour in Western Sydney was actually smaller than it was in the rest of the country. There's a sign that, that the Telegraph's policy of attacking Labour did not work in swinging votes uh, away from Labour. But if you look a bit more broadly and you look at the way in which policy is made and agendas are set, then Murdoch has a massive influence, I think. They set the agenda for radio and television, and they set the agenda for politicians on Sky News because an awful lot of politicians go on and appear there, and because it's live all the way around in Parliament House, and it's live, and it was live in every airport in the country as well. And in particular, I think it's had a big effect on Australia failing to do much on climate change, because Sky 
news and, and the Murdoch papers, particularly the Australian, have been savagely against doing anything serious about climate change. And that, I think, has green-lighted politicians to do the same. Primetime comes along and all these opinion hosts get on there. They are all basically of one, of one uh, ilk. They all think climate change is a hoax or, or massively overrated. They basically have the same attitudes on a whole heap of things. But they have an audience among politicians and among um, journalists and business leaders. And that's really, I think, how the, how the effect is, uh, is spread. Uh, I, I think if you live in New Zealand, you probably don't understand what it's like. But it is, it's a major feature of politics in this country, the Murdoch media. Well, when it comes to, say, political influence and influence on political decision making, um, I mean, I, I worked in uh, the UK and I can recall editors like Kelvin McKenzie would have been in charge of the Sun mm. newspaper at the times you're talking about. The subsequent Sun editor, David Yelland, they all denied it. They said, it's rubbish. We're aware of it. We talk to him, but we are left to our own devices. We are doing journalism. They were very firm on that. Now, in recent times... Some of them, now long out of that company, have turned this stuff around. For example, David Yelland. He said, David Yelland, um, a lot of a generation of journalists have allowed their careers to be corrupted. Um, is, is that part of the Murdoch legacy? Or is, is that something that would have happened anyway in the, in the modern internet culture? I don't think uh, Rupert Murdoch was the first uh, to corrupt journalists. And, uh, uh, you know, there's been a corrupt journalist around a long, long time. I think he's had a profound effect on, on, on journalism in, in Britain. And sure, as a journalist, if you, if you want to work for those organisations, you have to do it. If you go out and don't get the story, then you're out. And so that's the way in which you're employed. And if you've got a, uh, a media company that employs, uh, that in this country, Australia, something like 60, 70% of the circulation of the national press, of the sort of big city press, and in Britain it's something like 40% Murdoch has, there are very few places to work apart from Murdoch, or the, or, or the choice is limited. I mean, you also mention in the book the things you've talked about, the treatment of well-known people and, and not-so-well-known people was, was terrible, but then also the bribery of public officials, very, very serious. And yet, you know, in your book, the final chapter is called your Epilogue, The Reckoning, but, I mean, I guess it turned out to be not a reckoning. I mean, they lost one of their top tabloid titles out of it, the news of the world, but... The company carried on. Um, well, it was a reckoning. It cost them a billion pounds or more in damages, and they failed to get um, B Sky B, which they 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 had um, memory forty percent of. They wanted the whole thing, but yes, I mean ultimately, there's been very little reckoning at all. Ten years later, he was selling the studios to Disney for seventy billion or something like that. So I mean, the Empire is worth massively more, and the, and the Murdochs are worth massively more. 13 years after that than they were, or 10 years after that than they were at the time. So it hasn't really been a, a reckoning at all. And Murdoch is still, you know, at the top table with all these leaders. He's still using his papers to push particular points of view, particular ideologies, particular policies, particular people. He's absolutely not changed in that one bit. And, and political leaders still form a conga line to his door because they know how powerful he is in terms of, or they, th they think he's very powerful in terms of helping them get elected. And finally, Paul, what's it like reporting on the sort of stuff for the Media Watch programme on the ABC? Because uh, News Limited is very hostile to you. Must must make it difficult just, just trying to report on media issues. Uh, I think it's hard because they are such a big part of the media in Australia. 
And so almost however they behave, they're likely to be to dominate or to be a very large part of the of the stuff that we look at. And they're an even larger part because in my view, they bend the rules or they do things that are worthy of criticism more than most. So I, I don't have a problem about getting into them. I, I have a problem that if we get into them too much, we're, we're seen to be uh, victimizing them or criticizing them too much or chasing them. So that's kind of a minor consideration we have. But look, I call it as I see it. We call it as we see it. Um, if, if they do something that we think is wrong, we get up and say so. And they can scream and shout at us as they do. And we scream and shout at them in return. Whether it changes anything is another matter. But look, it's our job to to uh, critique the media and to say, we think this is wrong. We think this is bullying. We think this is a campaign that has no uh, reasonable support or has no support in reason. We think that this, this is not factually correct. We think this is not uh, sensible, whatever. So we keep on doing that. I don't have a problem doing it personally. I'm happy to be judged by our audience and um, other people in the media. As far as I can see, they think we're doing a reasonably good job. That was Paul Berry, the host of the TV show Media Watch on the Australian public broadcaster, the ABC. And he's the author of Breaking News, Sex, Lies and the Murdoch Succession. Well, that's all we have for you on Media Watch this weekend, but we'll be back with more on the media on Midweek Media Watch. That's on Nights with Mark Leishman after the 10pm news next Wednesday. And then we'll be back again with a look back at how the election unfolded in the media at the earlier time of 7.30 next Sunday morning, ahead of the main post-election special at 8am here on RNZ National.